Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten. Today, I'm joined by two talented health service providers, Drs. Heather Papoor-King and Mandy Conrad. Heather is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Pain Medicine, and also serves as the director of the Pain Psychology Fellowship at Stanford University School of Medicine's Department of Anesthesiology. That is a very long title, perioperative and pain medicine. Great to have you here, Heather. And Mandy was a former postdoctoral fellow in that very clinical pain psychology fellowship. We are thrilled to have you both on. Mandy is now serving as the clinical research program coordinator at the Center for Integrated Healthcare which is a VA Center of Excellence in Buffalo, New York. Thank you both for being on the program. Welcome. Thank you. We are very excited to be here today. Likewise, likewise. Like, like we've been talking for some time, even before you, you came on the program today, I, I know how much this issue of chronic pain and the treatment of chronic pain, how important this is for us here in America, but also within your, our roles as psychologists and health service providers. You know, back in March of 2021, God, it feels like forever when I think about it now, I had the opportunity to chat with a colleague, uh, I think of yours, Dr. Beth Darnell, uh, who is I think the director of the Stanford Pain Relief Innovations Lab. And we talked a little bit about the state of chronic pain in America, but I'm really eager to learn more. You know, after that initial conversation, I just was left with a lot of questions and thinking about, you know, our role as psychologists, what can it look like in the room? So before we, we dig into that, I, I'm curious, what does chronic pain treatment look like in America today? Yeah, I mean, I think we have an opportunity as health psychologists and as pain psychologists to play a very important role in the treatment of chronic pain. Um, despite decades of research on the um, biopsychosocial approach being the gold standard uh, of treating chronic pain, we are still left in 2021 with this focus being more biomedical in nature. Right. There, there's a lack of education for providers around how to treat chronic pain. Uh, there's a lack of psychologists, specifically pain psychologists. Um, insurance authorization, you know, there's, it's a, it's a problem that I think as health psychologists, we have a amazing opportunity to help educate and treat, um, given the opportunity. We've got this, this huge gap. That's what I'm yes. hearing, Heather. We've just got this tremendous gap in our field when it, when it comes to, to training. And, and then I'm guessing that has implications for our practices as well. I mean, what does it mean for us not to have chronic pain treatment experience or training? Well, I think it leaves us ill-equipped <laughs> to help people that really need help. And so when you think about, you know, how we think of treating pain in America, 
uh, we're still thinking about chronic pain from an acute pain standpoint. We're still thinking of it as imminent danger in the moment, medication, surgery, interventions. And unfortunately, research shows and anecdotal evidence highlights that that just doesn't do it. And so if we as health psychologists don't have proper training in how to treat chronic pain, then we're missing the opportunity to help people who are interested in receiving help. But also when we're on these interdisciplinary teams or we work in a medical setting, we don't have the opportunity to then collaborate and educate other providers. Right, right. And so it, it leads me to a question for both of you, Heather and Mandy. You know, I'm thinking about what I'm hearing is this, this pipeline feels broken. Like, like we've got this need and yet psychologists aren't receiving their training, whether that's in their graduate programs or afterwards and no, or not enough of it. And then they're entering the workforce and, and maybe they're, they're not well equipped for those moments. And it feels like the pipeline there almost is not where it needs to be. So in some ways I'm finding myself curious, how did you two find your ways to the treatment of chronic pain? How, how did you find this field for yourselves? So I think when most people think about treating chronic pain, I, I think it's really typical for people to gravitate toward how psychologists can mitigate the negative impact of chronic pain, which is absolutely important. Um, we need to highlight here that actually the, the, the description of pain is literally an unpleasant emotional and sensory experience. Now, how I became involved and what I became very passionate about really in, evolved from two very seminal experiences as a psychology trainee. So the first, I worked as a research interventionist providing telephone-based cognitive behavioral therapy research interventions to rural veterans who were undergoing surgery. Mm. And the second was on internship when I uh, did a year-long rotation in primary care, providing uh, brief primary care-based protocolized CBT treatments. And what I realized from this anecdotal evidence that patients were providing is that many of them were unaware of non-pharmacological pain management strategies. Mm. So really what you saw was through these interventions, patients were very empowered to learn about self-management strategies that they could use that were outside of the biomedical realm. And so to me, that was very rewarding. I was able to help improve patients' quality of life. And I wanted to continue that on my fellowship. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I'm just hearing that, you know, even having a little bit of exposure through a, whether it be a trainee, an intern, a postdoc, uh, or a, a health service psychologist, having some of that exposure can be really eye-opening, not just to us, but also it sounds like for those that we serve as well. What about for you, Heather? I'm really curious uh, what attracted you to this field and, and how did, how did you find chronic pain? Yeah, my, <laughs> my um, trajectory is not quite traditional. So I started off, uh, psychology is actually a second career for me. So mm -hmm. I started off when, with an undergraduate degree in, I guess it would be like a, a health and fitness management slash business degree. And so I worked as like a director of, um, I worked for a large YMCA in metropolitan Milwaukee as a director of health and physical education. And then I had my own corporate wellness consulting company for a period of time. And then on the side, I worked as a personal trainer for just about a decade. Wow. 
And so I was very interested in exercise physiology and health and fitness and specifically stages of change and motivation as it relates to physical health. I started to look into graduate programs, looking at exercise physiology versus kinesiology, and then stumbled across health psychology, (laughs) which was exactly what I was attempting to do. Um, but not fully doing. And so that got me started on pursuing a PhD in clinical psychology. So I went into graduate school very focused on wanting to get additional training on mind-body interventions, knowing that I had come through more of the body aspect, but understanding it is all about the brain. It is all about your thoughts and how they affect your emotions and your behaviors and the interconnection between the two. I did my first or my second practicum at the San Francisco VA and worked with Dr. Timothy Carmody, who is a health psychologist. And I got introduced to chronic pain and biofeedback. And I was a hundred percent sold from that point on. It just made so much sense to me, understanding the body anatomy, physiology, and then the pain neuroscience piece, and then putting biofeedback in there with chronic pain. I just never looked back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, for both of you, thank you for, for sharing a little bit about how you got here. Because when I think about pipelines, I think about examining like what leads someone on this path or what might expose somebody to be able to then turn this into a career. And one of my missions on the podcast is to often find ways to feature and focus trainees and maybe even students along with early career psychologists as well. So I was so thrilled when I started talking with both of you about the idea of having you on the podcast. I was excited not only to, to have an early career psychologist, Mandy, yourself on, on the podcast, but also to talk more about this fellowship that you both are a part of in different ways. Um, And I want to learn more about how we can extend these opportunities to trainees across the country, if you will. So Heather, I'm wondering if we can start with you. Tell us a little bit about the Clinical Pain Psychology Fellowship. So our Pain Psychology Fellowship started in 2011. Um, I became a part of it in 2012. Um, I'm the director of the fellowship, but also the primary supervisor. So I'm very familiar with it. Our goal is to train highly talented, brilliant young professionals like Mandy to to be able to specialize in the treatment of chronic pain. And so we are housed in the Department of Anesthesiology. Um, A lot of um, experiences with with pain rotations in fellowship usually get like three months or a Mm -hmm. a little taste of it. We are 100% pain psychology all day, every day. And so you're, they're working in an interdisciplinary team. So we have physicians, nurses, uh, physical therapists, social workers, and of course, our, our, our pain psychologists. And it's really focused on helping the fellows understand evaluation and management of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is we do 90-minute evaluations where we are doing a full health and behavioral assessment to understand how they think about their pain, the impact of their pain, um, the approaches that they've found beneficial versus non-beneficial, and then getting them connected with services 
that can help them regain control of their life. And so that could be through individual treatment. We have a lot of groups that we run, self-management resources, and of course, referrals. What makes that 90 minutes unique or different from maybe the more, um, you know, just kind of general training that a, a trainee might get from an APA credit program? What happens in those 90 minutes? Because it sounds like already there's something unique that's, that's happening. Yeah. So it's a full psychological evaluation with a focus on pain management. So we are exploring, we like to use what's called the Stanford five as um, one aspect of, of the evaluation. So understanding from the patient's perspective, what do they think is causing their pain? I see. Do they have any concerns around what we call sinister beliefs that pain equals damage mm-hmm. or engaging in specific types of giving up activities or avoiding certain activities that are important to them in order to manage their pain. What is the impact that their pain is having on their current life? Mm -hmm. What do they believe is the correct treatment? Mm -hmm. And then what are their goals? So, so the Stanford five is really from the patient's voice. I think it's important to go into these evaluations with the intent of listening to understand to understand where the patient is coming from versus just listening with the intent of giving feedback, (laughs) which of course we give feedback. We have our recommendations, but I think, you know, you, you need to understand how they think about their pain, how they're conceptualizing it. What do they think are the correct treatment options? How's it affecting them? And then what do they want from you as far as treatment options? So we're really looking at the Stanford five, but then we're also looking at, various mood symptoms, like do they have untreated post-traumatic stress disorder? Do they have other needs um, that we might need to address? And then of course, providing all of the recommendations at the end. Heather, as you speak about the 90 minute initial evaluation and, and also Mandy, I was flashing back on your initial kind of exposure to conversations regarding pain and moving to more of a biopsychosocial bio, versus just a biomedical model. What I'm thinking about is how much our society tends to emphasize that biomedical model. Mm-hmm. And so it makes me really curious, especially Mandy, over this, this fellowship, what you might've noticed or what that looked like in, in trying to talk with people in a new way about this biopsychosocial version of things. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that there's a tendency for most patients to be treated by the biomedical model. And so I think traditionally, when we think about chronic pain treatment, we think of medication or right. you know, visiting with your physician. And so when you're talking to patients, um, a huge part of that education is to really describe what is the difference between acute pain versus chronic pain. And when you talk about those differences, you will teach the patient that, you know, chronic pain typically lasts and it kind of varies between, you know, which definition you use longer than three months or longer than six months. And you're teaching them that it's no longer a symptom. It's actually a condition that has to be treated differently. So even if acute and chronic pain both feel the same, they have to be approached differently. So with chronic pain, you know, part of that education is to teach the patient, like, what is a biopsychosocial model? Most people don't have an understanding of what that means. 
And when you're explaining it to a patient, if you do say, you know, psychological and social factors can influence your pain trajectory, sometimes that can be misinterpreted as, you know, oh, so are you saying that my pain is strictly psychological? Are you saying my pain right. isn't real? So a huge emphasis that you have to make is that we know that your pain is real. We believe you, but we also need to inform you that there are all of these other factors that can make your pain feel better or make them feel worse. And so truthfully, um, it was such a rewarding process because I would say once that education is provided, I didn't really see anyone who, who didn't agree with it. And as I mentioned earlier, most people found it incredibly rewarding to know that there were aspects of their pain condition that they could control and mm -hmm. therefore have a better quality of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the phrase yes and or both mm -hmm. and is really standing out that the pain can be real and there can be a psychological component. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, Mandy, I'm finding myself really curious to know more about what it was like for you to be a fellow. Take us a little bit uh, on, on a, a journey, a timeline of what that year was like for you. Oh, sure. And, and how, would you like me to start with the application process or just with the fellowship itself? You know, wherever you, wherever you think would be, well, would be helpful for, for us to learn about, but also, yeah, with an eye towards trainees in the future. What, what might they need to know or what might they want to know about the, the year? Yeah. Well, I would like to say that I think it can be somewhat difficult to find and identify sites that specialize in pain uh, for your fellowship. So I do just want to offer two pieces of feedback. Um, one is that there's the APIC site, which allows you to use specific program criteria. And so something that you can do is use a keyword search and look for pain. And also if APA accreditation is important to you, you can select that. Um, I, I did a preliminary search today before our podcast and saw there were only eight sites listed, wow. seven of them VAs and one of them Stanford Medicine. So the other resource that I would encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast um, to pursue is also look for mentors who are already in pain psychology. And I think a part of that is you have to decide, are you more clinically focused? Are you more focused on research and, or do you want to balance those things? Um, so I would use those resources. So, yeah. And then, you know, I think a huge part of it is the interviewing process. So for me, I knew what I was looking for and Stanford offered all of those things. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, I was looking for a couple of things, one, just sort of the interpersonal climate. So, you know, how did people relate to me during my interview? Right. Um, you know, you know, what was the mentorship model? What drew people to that site? Why did they work there? Why did they stay and then the second, of course, was the training experience, which, which proved to be exactly what I, uh, you know, obtained from the interview. So in terms of training, um, you know, I was interested in knowing how invested are my prospective supervisors in my training experience. Absolutely. So truth, yeah. So anyone listening to this, you know, it's, it's yes, an opportunity for you to showcase your skills and to build them, but it's also an opportunity for that training site to invest in you. Hmm. And so a few things that drew me to Stanford, um, one was just the developmental model um, was used in supervision. And there was also just great exposure to so many sound theoretical orientations. So while I was at Stanford, I got exposure to um, acceptance and commitment therapy for pain, um, biofeedback. And in fact, Stanford paid for a week-long biofeedback certification program, which is really wow. quite rare. We you know, got exposure to hypnosis, um, motivational interviewing and a number of different modalities for pain treatment. So that to me was incredibly important, important, like what kind of diverse modalities will I be exposed to? Um, in addition, 
you know, even though the developmental model was used, I was also treated as a junior colleague. And a couple of things that I was also looking for in mentorship was really, you know, just being a woman in psychology. Something that I have to work on is finding my poise, you know, finding my power, especially within an academic medical setting. When you're surrounded by so many esteemed psychologists, physicians, uh, physical therapists, and other providers. So I deeply, deeply appreciated working with Dr. King, who was so critical in my professional development. You know, if I can offer personal examples, some of the things that she did was, uh, you know, when I gave a, a lecture or was presenting in public, she would be the first person to show up to my events and she would champion mm -hmm. me. And so, um, you know, it just, that was so valuable, especially as just a first generation college student who might be uncomfortable in some of those situations. So sure. um, yeah, the fellowship was just amazing um, in so many ways. You know, Mandy, as you talk about your experience, I almost had a vision of, I think when you were talking about being surrounded by your esteemed colleagues, thinking, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, does this feel like a recipe for imposter syndrome? <laughs> and wondering how the heck you might navigate through that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And as I alluded to, you know, I think identity is so important. So being a first generation college student who didn't really have that scaffolding, coming into these very prestigious institutions with a very important role can be, you know, uh, quite nerve wracking to say the least. And so sure. I would say that Dr. King or Heather um, was so critical in, in um, supporting me through that. You know, she, again, sort of gradually encouraged me to, you know, find my voice in those meetings. So she would, you know, open up invitations like Mandy, you know, you had a thought about, a, you had a hypothesis or a conceptualization about this client. Like, why don't you share your thoughts? And eventually I would actually say that that was my greatest transformation. She helped me move from a place of self-consciousness, right? Uh, almost a place of self-centeredness where when you're speaking, maybe you're more concerned about how you appear to people. And then it transitioned to what I would say is purely worrying about the patient and being concerned and making sure that what I say is important to their treatment. So yeah, that was the greatest transformation I had at Stanford. And I certainly credit Heather as a mentor for that. Wow, it just sounds like an incredible experience. Mandy, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about that year and what that was like, but also navigating some of the challenges that I think for many trainees can be uh, activated in those kinds of environments. So thank you so much for, for being willing to share that. You know, I wanna zoom out a little bit beyond Stanford and, and the fellowship as well, because it seems like this, this issue, this concern around chronic pain only seems to be getting bigger. You know, the latest statistics that I was reading said about 50 million US adults experience chronic pain. And on a broader level, I'm really curious what we might be able to learn from these clinic spaces and these opportunities that we've been speaking about and what we might be able to apply elsewhere or what we might wanna be thinking about elsewhere in America. So if we could wave that proverbial magic wand, how would chronic pain treatment look in America? How could it be more effective? I would be happy to respond first if that's. Um, so one thing that I would love to see, so, and I'll give room for Dr. King to share her thoughts, is that I think there's a stigma that's associated with chronic pain. And I think that when I imagine treatment, it starts with like the patient seeking care. And so from my experience, um, you know, I am aware that many patients delay treatment 
um, or are afraid to share with their providers the level of pain that they're experiencing because they're afraid of labels, right? A label of, you know, are you drug seeking or are you exaggerating your pain, which is not true. So I think for me, treatment starts first at this place where we help patients become more comfortable or people living with chronic pain become more comfortable with seeking treatment in the first place before it becomes like we talked about a chronic condition versus where we could offer prevention intervention. Um, you know, I also think that we still have some problems with assessment. So, and in, in, again, through anecdotal experience with my patients, many people say that zero to 10 pain scale just does not work for my situation. So ideally, even when it comes to assessment, I would love to see, you know, some type of actually many different types of scales that, be, that can be universally sort of interpreted and that fit to different people's experiences. And even the International Association for the Study of Pain says, you know what, not everyone actually verbalizes their pain. And that includes humans and non-animals. And so we have to be aware of these diverse communications. Um, in addition, uh, there's the National Pain Strategy, which was, um, I believe, put out by the Interagency Pain Research Coordinating Committee. And, you know, they talked about something I just mentioned, like we have to work more on prevention efforts. You know, what, what would chronic pain look like if we actually intervened at these very critical points? Um, and I would like to see interventions include more social and family supports, because I think oftentimes we're treating the individual. And if we really speak about chronic pain from a biopsychosocial model, people are, do not operate in isolation. They interact with many different systems and many different individuals. Um, and then finally, I, I think importantly for me, it's, it's normalizing and making these interdisciplinary relationships between you know, medicine and psychology and making that a standard and routine part of care. And I think Dr. King will kind of mention about credence and the, the biopsychosocial model and how you build that. Yeah, well said, Mandy. I completely agree with all those points. It's, it's interesting, you know, when you look at medical school training, <laughs> there's almost none. Uh, there's almost no training when it comes to chronic pain. And so we are not even equipping our medical students on what chronic pain is, how to treat it. So we need to make a massive cultural shift in how we are addressing these problems. Um, even the mind-body connection is something that a lot of people are walking around not recognizing that our mind and body are connected 100% of the time. Right. And so we are living, breathing, experiencing beings. So of course our psychology is involved in our experience. And so I've been working with primary care providers now for quite some time in providing education and mostly continuing education on how to understand the role of psychology in the treatment of chronic pain and, you know, doing different podcasts like this and, and different talks around the country aimed at medical providers to build that collaboration, to pique their curiosity in how these factors influence one's unique experience of pain. Because when we're talking about stigma, there's stigma with the providers and there's the stigma with the person who has pain. And so we really need to be addressing both. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. I really, really appreciate some of the ideas that both of you are sharing with us. And, and I'm hoping, my, my vision is that 
the providers and even trainees across the country may think about what they can take from this and apply within their own settings. And, you know, I think it's eye-opening too, Heather, to hear you speak about how medical providers or medical students aren't necessarily even receiving this chronic pain treatment either. I mean, that is really shocking to hear. And yet it's, it also, yeah, go ahead. It's interesting that <laughs> you get more education on how to treat chronic pain mm -hmm. through becoming a veterinarian than you do becoming a medical doctor. Wow, that's wild. Wow, I never knew that. Wow, yeah, you know, I, I think we, it, it goes back in, in almost full circle to the beginning of our talk and thinking about this, this massive gap in education and opportunities. And even Mandy, I, I really appreciate you sharing, I, I didn't know that, that statistic of how few, I mean, it's a couple handfuls of, of programs where you can choose to specialize and, and get this kind of training. I'm thrilled that it exists anywhere. And yet that is pretty stark when we think about how tremendous a problem this is and how much more we could be involved. So it's making me think as we wrap up our podcast today, where can providers learn more? How can they get more involved in this important topic of chronic pain? So Stanford has um, a, a series. It's a series of training um, on understanding pain management. And I believe it's free. Um, you can get continuing education through this. And I participated in this, I think it was last year, um, and, and I created a one hour talk on the role of pain psychology. So I think that's a good place to start just as an overview um, of understanding different, you know, different things that are out there in regards to treating chronic pain. I think the other, the other thing that can be really helpful is getting involved in various conferences like the American Academy of Pain Medicine, um, the International Study Safe. International Association for the Study of Pain. Um, they've got different conferences and resources and, and connections. What I found to be most helpful is just getting to know other providers and, and having this collaborative relationship, sharing our resources and podcasts like this of, of just learning what's out there. If you're specifically looking for a pain psychologist, um, I was involved in 2010, I was one of the founding steering committee members for the American Association of Pain Psychology. So this is an organization where it's interdisciplinary. So it's not just for pain psychologists, but if you are specifically looking for a pain psychologist, you can go to their website and find um, a, a psychologist, a pain psychologist specifically by area. They also have different lectures and meetup groups. I think they just had like a, a virtual holiday party this past week. So that's also a great resource. And then something like Psychology Today, I, I think also can, you know, provide you with um, psychologists that specialize in pain. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Heather, Mandy, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and also sharing with us a little bit about where we might go if we wanna learn more. If you are interested in the resources that Heather has shared with us today, please be sure to check out the show notes on nationalregister.org. 
And um, because we will include a couple of links right there. So again, thank you very much to both of you for being on our program and sharing your expertise today. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, it was delightful. Thank you. Absolutely. And listeners, if you are interested in learning more about chronic pain treatment, be sure to check out my previous episode with Dr. Beth Darnell, wherever you subscribe. We had a wonderful complimentary conversation on the research and scope of chronic pain in America. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. 